Good morning. Uh, my name is Pete Milliken. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm um, leading us through a series uh, that was leading up to Christmas, which was Monday, obviously. And um, just for the next few weeks, we're going to continue the story in Luke and keep working our way through um, for a few more weeks uh, before we, we start a, a new series in the the new year. It's um it's an interesting day because it's the last one of the year. It's not often that. Sunday falls on the last day of the year, so it's a chance to look back at what has been, but also look forward in anticipation of the new year. And there's something, you know, exciting about the new year, um, because it's like a fresh start in a lot of ways, even though it's it's not really a fresh start in some ways, it's just, it's another day that starts, you know, ticking over to a new year. It's, it's, you're just going to wake up and life will be as it is. Um, but there's something about the idea that it's, it's new and it's fresh. And so people make New Year's resolutions, right? Has anyone made a New Year's resolution? Just, it's okay. Just be brave. Put your hand up. We've got one, yeah, f- a few out there, right? It's a normal thing that people will be like, all right, this year, it's going to be different. I'm going to do this, right? Um, my, my New Year's resolution last year was to run consistently, like physically run uh, consistently. And I started off really well and got to about uh, April and I was regularly running and starting to get fit and, and, and all those sorts of things. And then I went to America um, with my wife who's American to visit family. And I ate so much Chick-fil-A and drank so much Dr. Pepper um, and just got fat and lazy in the space of about a week, right? And running went out the window. I came back. It was cold. It was winter. And I just went into hibernation mode, right? I was just like a bear and I hibernated uh, for all of winter and didn't run. And so um, I've started running again at the end of the year when it's starting to warm up. But I always fail, right? I just fail at New Year's resolutions. And most people do, right? Next, next week, in the, the, the gyms are going to be full, right? The memberships are going to go through the roof, and probably by about March, um, the gyms are going to be advertising again because they have lost all their members or people have just stopped going, right? This is just how typically New Year's resolutions work. Um, even if you do it for a whole year, right? Let's just say it was to go to the gym. Are you going to keep it up for the next year? What about the year after that? Are you just going to go to the gym every day for the rest of your life and be able to do that on a consistent basis? Like, is that what you're going to do in order to be a success with this New Year's resolution? The truth is... We all fail, right? Most of the things that we undertake and put our, our efforts towards, at some point, we, we, don't, we don't reach perfection. Let's just put it that way, right? And there's some really cool things that we can do and strive towards and achieve, and we should you know, be, be okay about heading towards that. But really, most New Year's resolutions, pretty much all, they will eventually fail. And... Uh, you know, you, you, there's this phrase that gets thrown around at the beginning of the year, new year, new me. You heard that? It's like, I'm going to be different. It's going to be different for me this year. This year is going to be, you know, special. Um, that's just a crock, really. Most of the time, it's the new year. It's the same old you. Uh, and so this morning's message is titled, um, New Year, Same Jesus. New Year, Same Jesus. Because I want to point us to, in the text this morning... Um, the one who never failed, uh, the one who never fails and will never fail. Uh, we, we don't really have a category for that um, amongst ourselves, 
right? Because all of us have experienced failure. All of us do fail. All of us will fail. Like, you'll continue to fail as you go along in your life. And your New Year's resolutions are probably going to be one of those at some point. And that's okay because we have somebody in the Christian faith who, who came and didn't fail. Um, and this morning we're going to see how he didn't fail. From the very beginning of his life, he got it right, even though we get it wrong. So we're in Luke chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start at verse 21 and work our way to verse 35. And um, what we have here is Luke is doing an investigation. <clears throat> Luke has got his kind of critical lenses on, detective. Um, he was a companion of Paul, if you've read Acts and know anything about Paul, who's, who's a huge key figure in the beginning of the church and Luke spends time with Paul and Luke is going back and he's investigating uh, the life of Jesus and he's writing down an account of all that Jesus did and said and so Luke unlike all the other authors he goes back and gives us all this infancy material um, and, and material of Jesus's early life that we don't have in the other ones, right? Because he is thorough. He's a doctor. He, he is, has an eye for details. And he's going to go back um, even further and, and in more detail than Matthew, Mark, and John. And so what we have here is a story that you probably haven't spent too much time on. And it's when Jesus is brought to the temple as a baby, and there's uh, some, some things that take place. So let's read from verse 21, and uh, we'll, we'll just do a few verses and, and uh, work our way through it. So this is what it says in verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was, this is eighth day after Jesus was born, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. What we have here is Luke going back and showing you that Jesus, even as a baby, crossed every T and dotted every I of the law of Moses. And it's a significant thing to be um, aware of. There's, there's three requirements that Jesus fulfills in his infancy during this small section. So I want to go through them. The first one is there is a time of purification that the, the mother must observe. If they were to have a male firstborn child, they were unclean for 40 days, right? And they would have to go through a purification ceremony to become clean again. And this is outlined in Leviticus 12. Um, and so you can read more about that if you want. And if they were, um, they, they would be unclean for seven days, the child would be circumcised, and then they would be unclean for another 33 days after that. And that's what's going on here with Mary in the time of purification. Um, but also, um, oh, so this was a reminder to every parent, every woman who gave birth and every child that was born, that they were born into a sinful world. That the world that they came into was not as it should be, right? And... 
um, that there was a requirement that they would go from uncleanliness to cleanliness through this observation of 40 days. And so um, God wanted to remind every single Jew that they were born into a broken world, that it was tainted and cursed by sin. And that happened back in the garden, according to what Adam and Eve had done in their sin. And so you might think, well, that's not fair. They, you know, Mary didn't do anything wrong, but uh, you'll have to take that up with Adam and Eve because they started that trend, that curse, and it was set in stone. And so every mom who gave birth would have to do this. Now, you would think if there was ever going to be an exception to this rule, it would be Mary, right? Because Mary isn't bringing in a normal child like everybody else. She's bringing in the Son of God, the pure Lamb of God, the sinless one, right? And so if there was ever a time that you think, well, this purification period wouldn't have to be observed, it would be with Mary, right? And yet, she still goes through the 40 days requirement of purification, Why is that? Well, stay tuned. We'll get to that in a second. The next thing that happens is Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day. This is according to Genesis 17, the Abrahamic covenant, and Leviticus 12. And this was a requirement that all Jewish boys would be circumcised on the eighth day. And as time went on, that became the day that they were named as well. And this was a a reminder to all Jews, especially the males that there was a covenant made between God and Abraham, and that out of Abraham would come the seed, um, who would be the seed of Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent way back in the garden. It was a, a, a physical reminder of the promises of God, that there would be a seed who would eventually come, who would make all that was wrong right, who would fix all that was broken, right? And it was a physical reminder, so that every time you made love, Or every time you went to the bathroom, you looked down and you were reminded, God is going to fix this broken world and it will come through the seed of Abraham. And maybe that might be my line. Maybe it won't, maybe it will, right? And you you can see as we get through to um, all all the uh, the genealogies, they're tracing the line, right? People want to know, okay, so where did it eventually work its way through? Where was the seed working its way through? Um, That's a story for another time. Uh, but that's what circumcision was really all about. It was a physical reminder, you're a different nation, I'm going to bring the Savior through you. And so Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day in the temple. If you don't know what that is, um, I, I was going to say Google it. Don't Google it, uh, ask your parents. Um, so that's, that, that is what's going on. And, and again, you would probably ask, or um, you could ask the question, why does Jesus have to have this, Right? He's not looking for the seed. He is the seed. And yet he goes to the temple and is circumcised on the eighth day, even though in him it's being fulfilled. Why does he have to do it? Stay tuned. The third thing that happens is in verse 22, they come and they present Jesus at the temple for what's called a redemption price. And um, again, this is a requirement of the Old Testament law that every firstborn male animal, if it was a firstborn male animal, they were sacrificed, right? They, they were kaput. Um, they were sacrificed to the Lord. If it was a firstborn male child, human being, they were brought to the temple and they had to pay a redemption price to the temple of five shekels. 
um, and they would bring two sacrifices, a sin offering um, and a burnt offering. And um, this really goes back to when the Israelites were brought out of slavery and captivity in Egypt. And um, the, the, the quick backstory is um, all the firstborn male Jews were saved by the blood of the lamb that was put over the doorposts. And God in his spirit came through and brought um, judgment upon every other firstborn male of the Egyptians and they died. And so there was this idea that all the firstborn male Jews belonged to the Lord because he rescued them. And so he said, from that point on, a way of, of reminding you of my my goodness towards you, my grace towards you, my love for you, is that I rescued you out of slavery. All of your firstborn males now belong to me, and you must redeem them for a price. It will cost you. And uh, so every firstborn male would come to the temple. They would pay five shackles. They would do a sin offering. They would do a burnt offering. If you were wealthy, you would offer a lamb and a turtle dove. If you were poor, you could offer two turtle doves, right? Uh, Because lambs were expensive, and so God made provision for the poor, and Mary and Joseph come, and they offer two turtle doves, right? So Mary and Joseph were not well off. They were poor. They operate, though, according to the law. They do everything by the book, in some sense. And again, you probably wonder, like, why do they have to do this for Jesus? He is the pure Lamb of God. He um, surely doesn't need to be bought back um, or redeemed. Um, he, he is the Son of God, and yet they still do these three things according to the law. Um, these things were reminders that every single person that came into the world was a soul that needed saving, that there was not one who would come who would not need a saviour. Um, and a sacrifice had to be made for every single person at some point. So why does Jesus have to fulfill these things and do these things if he is the only one who ever got it right? Well, just stick with me here because this is important. In fact, this helps us understand exactly how we have been saved and redeemed. Jesus obeys the law in every single way, because he's going to remain the perfect Lamb of God. And he has to do that in order to be our substitute. If he's going to take our place and be a sacrifice for our sin, he has to be a pure, spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And Jesus is born at a time where the Mosaic law, the Old Testament, is in operation. Right, And so he is born at a time where he is under the law. And so he must practice and fulfill the law exactly as we were required to or the people were required to at the time. And so he does. Even though he might be the exception in the way of uh, his, his sinlessness, he still operates accordingly to what is required for a male Jew at the time. And he fulfills the law perfectly. No one else was able to ever do that. He's the only human being who was able to come and do that on a, at a level that, that we were not. 
And so when he takes our place and we take his, if Christ isn't perfect and sinless, then we still remain in our sin. This is the importance of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus was the affirmation that Christ had, uh, that God the Father had accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul says, if Christ isn't resurrected, then we're still in our sin, right? The resurrection was the proof that, that, we, that the, the sacrifice of Jesus had been accepted by God the Father. Therefore, forgiveness of sins is real. That means that that sacrifice had to be sinless. Or we trade places and we're in still the same position as we were. A sinful, broken, cursed, hell-bound human being. And this is why Luke goes to extreme lengths to tell us and to show us that Christ operated perfectly as required by the law at the time when he was born. So you can be sure that he is righteous and that righteousness that he has, we now have through his sacrifice. Let me show you how Paul puts this in a few different places. Romans 8, <clears throat> Paul says this, for, the law, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, okay, basically saying no one could obey this thing. The flesh, the humanness of us, we, we failed. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was a human being just like us. He had, a, he had humanity. As an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How is it fulfilled in us? It's fulfilled in us through what Christ has done. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We get his place, he takes ours. And, and lastly, 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see that he, he takes our place as sinners, as sinner. We take his place and receive the righteousness of God. We are adopted as sons because Christ was perfect <clears throat> and all the way through the gospels you're going to see that jesus operates perfectly according to the law of moses <clears throat> he does not ever get it wrong and all the way through you're going to see the pharisees trying to trap jesus into disobeying the law so they have some dirt on him and all the way through, the, the Pharisees set up these traps over and over and over and see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. Is he going to eat on the Sabbath? Is he going to wash accordingly on the Sabbath? All these sorts of things. And over and over and over, Jesus shows them, actually, I operate according to the law um, perfectly. And you are the ones that actually misunderstand the law or wrongly accuse me of it. And you just don't want to get in a, a back and forth fight with the the guy who is the character of God on display in, in human form, right? You're, you're just going to lose. Every time you will lose against Jesus. He, he knows the law. He is God in human flesh operating perfectly. 
And so the Pharisees fail over and over and over trying to trap him. Uh, you get to the end and they're trying to bring accusations to um, Caiaphas, the high priest, and they've organized these false witnesses. And they can't even agree in their own testimony about Jesus getting something wrong. And then he's brought before Pilate. And what does Pilate say? I find no fault in this man. I can't find anything. He's clean. Um, I, I don't know why you're bringing him to me. I wash my hands of this. I don't want any part of putting to death a righteous man who I can't find any fault with. He's perfect in every way. He never puts a foot wrong. And he is the perfect representation of the character of God all the way through. Even eight days old. Perfect. Gets it right. He's our perfect substitute. He takes our place. And we take his. And that's why salvation can be found in no one else. And that's why we can have confidence in our salvation and be assured of the forgiveness of our sins. Not because of what we have done. It is because of what Christ has done. And Luke goes to extreme lengths to make sure that everybody who is reading this book, who who reads his research, knows Christ is the righteousness of God. Calvin uh, put it this way. For the Son of God, though spotlessly pure, took upon him the disgrace and public shame of our iniquities, and in return clothed us with his purity. That is how salvation has been purchased for us. Christ has been perfect in his life. Now, while this event is taking place at the temple, we have another witness who's going to speak. And uh, he's one of the best Old Testament saints still alive up until this point. It's the only real time that he gets a mention. Um, his name's Simeon. And, and he's going to say some things about Jesus and who he is and his life. And so we'll read of that now. Verse 25 and following. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law... Then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. What happens here is Simeon has been promised. He has been told by the Lord that he would see the Messiah before he physically dies. And Jesus comes into the temple. He holds Jesus in his arms. And he says, I can now depart in peace. I have seen the Messiah, the Lord has fulfilled his promise to me. And we still kind of use this language a little bit today. When something really good happens, you just say like, oh, I can die a happy man now, right? Like, take me, Lord, I'm ready. 
And we do it for things that aren't that exciting. But, you know, like if the Brisbane Broncos ever win that premiership, I'll be able to say, you know, like, take me, Lord, I'm ready. Um, The likelihood of that happening, I don't know anymore. Uh, You know, if Tom can make it through a sermon without crying, he'll probably say the same thing. Lord, I've made it. You can take me now. If Pete can get through a sermon without fiddling with his notes, he could probably say that as well. Now, Simeon goes on, he's going to reveal some things about Jesus' life and ministry, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared, prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at these things which were being said about him. We have mentioned here that Christ, Jesus, is going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. It's the first time in Luke that it seems to be mentioned or at least pointed towards that that this message, this salvation is not going to be for just Israel alone. It will be for Jew and for Gentile, Jew first and then the Gentile. This is a quote from Isaiah 42.6. Um, it's mentioned in other places in the Old Testament as well, but this idea that Christ would be a light unto the nations, um, that's, a, that's Isaiah 42.6. And um, it's interesting what's mentioned, the next verse, 42.7, it says that Jesus will open, or the Messiah will open the eyes of the blind um, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, is the, is the wording who dwell in darkness. And so there's this idea that God will open the eyes of the blind. Not, not just physically, although Christ will do that. He will, he will physically open the eyes of the blind as a sign that He not only has the power to do that physically, but in a spiritual sense, He will open the eyes of those who are blind to their sin, to their need of a saviour, to the beauty and majesty and righteousness found in Jesus only. He will spiritually do that. And he will rescue those who are trapped in the consequences of the fallen world and in their own sin. That is what Christ will do. And as you go through the Gospels, you see that happening. He says things like, your sins are forgiven. Now, only God has that authority to be able to do that. And yet Jesus says things like that. He physically heals people uh, to show that not only can he physically heal them, but they are a greater sign of all the work that he can do and one, w- one day will do in its entirety. And the image of being in prison is a striking one. It's this, it's this idea that you are trapped. You are being held against your own will. And that there is an outside entity who is keeping you in there. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that is the way that 
the Bible describes those who are still stuck in their sin, who have not received the righteousness of Christ. And there is only one who can do something about that, and it is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And He is going to rescue people from their own sins. How is He going to do that? He's going to live a sinless life and be sacrificed on the cross for the salvation and forgiveness of sins of those who are trapped in darkness. And you will receive His righteousness and He will receive the penalty for your sin. And this message, this just keeps going on, right? This is not just, it doesn't just finish in the book of Luke. It goes on to, into Acts where people come to believe Jesus as Messiah and receive His righteousness and the forgiveness of sins. And it goes from, uh, it, it goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts of the earth, from, from Galatia to Corinth to, to Turkey and Asia Minor. And then it works its way all the way to London and Lebanon and America and Australia. And we sit here today and there are people amongst us who have been taken out of darkness into light because of what Jesus has done. And every now and then we get to celebrate that and we, we, uh, we fill this, this tank up here and people stand in front of everyone and they tell stories. about how Jesus has taken them from darkness into light. From imprisonment to freedom. From sinner to saint. Because Jesus didn't fail, even when we do. And then Simeon says something to Mary, which is striking, it is sobering. <clears throat> Verse 34. Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, Greek translation, watch this. Mary, watch out. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. To the end, that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is going to be the rise and fall of many in Israel. And what do you have as you go through the Gospels? You have people who love him, and you have people who hate him. You have people who believe in him. And you have people who reject him. You have the religious authorities who want to kill him. And you have the disciples who don't want him to die. You have the sinners and the tax collectors who want to be near him. And you have the rich and the powerful who cannot follow him. The Old Testament called this the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. Isaiah 28 talks about this idea that there would be a cornerstone placed and the cornerstone would be used in, um, in building a wall or an archway, but it was the first stone placed and every other stone in the wall would find its right alignment and place lined up with the cornerstone. It's the most important part of the building. 
And if you get the cornerstone right, every other stone finds its right place in line with that. And the Old Testament said that there will be a stone, a cornerstone that will be placed. And some will trip over it. It will be a stumbling block to some. And for the majority of the Jewish leaders, it is the stumbling block. They could not believe in one who wasn't going to bring about the restoration of Israel over their Roman authorities. And Jesus was not the one that they wanted, and so they killed him. But as you go through, there are those who accept Jesus as the Messiah. And they put him in the cornerstone position. And the inference from that point on is that the rest of your life would find its rightful place. Every other aspect of, of your life would find its place in, in line with the cornerstone. Your relationships, your finances, your role as a husband or wife the way that you parent, it should find its rightful place in alignment with the cornerstone. And then Simeon says something to Mary that I think it will make every parent squirm in their seat this morning. He says, Mary, Jesus is going to receive so much opposition that a sword will pierce even your own soul. And this is probably referring to the fact that Jesus will, get, uh, will receive so much opposition from the religious leaders, it will be intense enough that they will, they will get him killed. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus lays his life down voluntarily, but the, the Pharisees are at a point where they seek to kill him. And Mary will watch her own son die. And not just any death. He'll be tortured. Hung up on a cross for hours. I can barely even fathom it. I have to uh, hold my son when he gets his immunization needles. <laughs> it's 30 seconds. Um, he flinches and he cries. And about a minute later, he's fine. And I hate it. And I know it's good for him, right? It's the right thing to do. It's, um, but watching your kid go through pain whether it be physical or emotional or rejection or whatever it is. Like every parent knows like that is so hard. And Mary is going to watch her own son on the cross. And Simeon says it's going to be like a sword going through your soul. And so parents, if you have a hard situation with your kid, you are not alone.
And Simeon finishes with this. To the end, that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There will be the rise and fall of many in Israel, and thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Jesus' ministry will show where people really are with God. Where do they stand before God? He will determine their eternal fate. Jesus won't let anyone sit on the fence. Everyone who has ever lived will one day stand before God and be judged. And you will either be judged according to what you did or you will be judged according to the life of Christ and what he did. Those are the only two options. And you can either argue based on what you did or you can not argue at all and just point to Jesus for what he did. So you can either argue on self-righteousness or Christ-righteousness. And I just want to tell you that without Jesus, none of us stand a hope. I know that might sound harsh or confronting, but it is true. According to God's word, there is no hope for anyone who does not have the righteousness of Christ. And again, you don't want to argue with Jesus on this. You want to go with Jesus. You just want to go with Jesus on everything. Because in the end, there will be a split in humanity into two groups. And it's not going to be split the way that we split things. It's not going to be split East versus West. It's not going to be split rich versus poor. It's not going to be split renters versus buyers. It's not going to be split vegan versus normal. It's not going to be split dog lovers versus psychopaths. It will be divided with who is with Jesus and who is by themselves. Who is under Jesus' righteousness and who is under their own self-righteousness. And there will be no ambiguity. For God will look at the heart and the hearts of all will be revealed. So if you're sitting here this morning and you are playing the part, but deep down you know you, you really don't trust or believe Christ for his righteousness and salvation, that will be revealed. There is no point trying to pretend one way or the other. Jesus, he is the central figure of all of the history of, wo of the world. Everything pointed towards him and everything after has, has looked back at what he did 2,000 years ago. There is no one like him and he loves you more than you can understand. He loves you.
C.S. Lewis, uh, he said this about Jesus. It's kind of my point. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Talking about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is a son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So what are you going to do with Jesus in 2024? Are you going to make him Lord? And the cornerstone that everything else finds its right place? Make your New Year's resolution not to go to the gym or get fit or... You can do those things. You want to know the Savior better. Everything else in your life will find its right place when you make him number one. Know him better, walk with him closer. In 2000, um, I heard this story recently. I was debating whether I was going to tell it. What the heck, last day of the year. It's fresh slate tomorrow. Billy Graham um, was honoured kind of in his hometown in, in 2000 for all that he had done and he's speaking in front of a big audience and he said um, he, he wanted to tell this story. And so he told this story of Albert Einstein um, and it was because in 2000 Albert Einstein had just been named the Man of the century, um, something like that, right? Big, big achievement. So he told this story of Einstein who, um, everyone knew who Einstein was. He'd, he'd become obviously famous and he was on a train and he was going from one place to another and he was on this train and the conductor was working his way down the carriage and checking everyone's tickets. And Einstein saw the conductor and checked his pocket and it was empty, and so he checked his other pocket. It was empty. He checked his coat pockets. They were empty. He couldn't, couldn't find his ticket. And as he's sort of searching around, by that time, the conductor was standing in front of him, and the conductor recognized him, right, as you do somebody famous. And he said, it's okay, Dr. Einstein. I'm sure you bought your ticket. Um, I will just continue to, to carry on checking others', others tickets. And he kept going down the carriage, and as he was about to move into the next carriage, um, he turned around, and there's Einstein on his hands and knees under the chair trying to find his ticket. 
And he came back and he said, Dr. Einstein, it's okay. I know who you are. Everyone in the train knows who you are. And Einstein looked around and says, yes, I know who I am too, but I don't know where I'm going. And Billy Graham said, I, I bought a new suit. And uh, this is the last suit I'll ever buy. Because I know I am departing soon. I'll be buried in this suit, most likely, and put into the ground. But the most important thing is that I know who I am. And I know where I'm going. Because of Christ, I know I am a son of God. And I'm going to be with him forever. Because Christ got it right from beginning to end. Let's pray. Father, if we could just know how much you love us this morning, we would be fine with, with going at any time. We would die happy men and women because the love and acceptance that you have for us is greater than anything else that we could have or need. And so as we take the elements, I pray you would help us to see Jesus for who he is, to remember his sacrifice, to be confident of the forgiveness that has been offered to us through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. I pray for anyone here who who doesn't know Jesus, who hasn't accepted him as Lord and Saviour, I pray by Holy Spirit you would bring conviction and repentance to them. And that those of us who have trusted in Him would love Him all the more. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.